Hello and welcome to Anderson's History. I'm currently standing at the bottom of the Well Tower of Lancaster Castle. Uh, it is a, a dungeon-like space and it was used as a dungeon. It was built during the 14th century, but it had its most famous occupants at the beginning of the 17th century when the Pendle witches, a dozen or so women who were accused of witchcraft, were held in this tiny space that I'm in now. We think it, one of them at least may have perished in here. Uh, it's an incredibly atmospheric space. It's closed to the public. It's a great honour to be allowed down here by the team at Lancaster Castle. Come and check it out. The castle's had an amazing restoration and it's uh, going to be an even better place to come and visit now. Um, And I am exploring it today, but this podcast got nothing whatsoever to do with Lancaster Castle. This podcast is a general election special. We've got Robert Saunders, a brilliant historian from Queen Mary's University in London. Uh, He is a total legend. Everyone follows him on Twitter and he's when he dispenses his pearls of wisdom and thoughts about the current political situation that we're in. It's a general election special. The election hasn't happened yet during this recording, so I hope it's not all hideously out of date by the time you listen to this. You can go to History Hit TV, don't forget to buy it, don't forget to subscribe, get it for your friends, neighbours, loved ones for Christmas. Just go to uh, historyhit.tv, use the code POD6, you'll get six weeks for free, so go and do that. And in the meantime, enjoy this podcast. I'm going to explore the rest of the castle. Robert, thanks very much for coming on this general election emergency podcast. Uh, um, where you're, when we look at this, when we look at this election, uh, does this feel to you like a, a, a important in historical terms, like an epochal election? Or, you know, you, maybe you're 1910, you're 23, you're 45, and you're 79. Does this feel like a big one to you? It does. I, I think there's always a temptation to think that the election in front of you is of <laughs> historic significance, and parties always have an interest in pitching it that way. But I think this one does feel particularly important, firstly because we have a genuinely fundamental decision in front of us relating to Brexit, but also because it feels like a new kind of party system is emerging, that both the major parties are changing quite significantly in what they stand for and the constituencies that they represent. There are all sorts of interesting challenger parties. So it feels perhaps like you know, something is trying to be born and we don't yet know what it is. And in that, does your mind then inevitably get cast back to the something trying to be born at the beginning of the 20th century? It does. I, I think there are a lot of really interesting parallels, particularly with the period before 1914. At that point in time, again, you've got an extraordinarily volatile electorate. 1900, the Conservatives and Unionists win a landslide majority. The next election in 1906, the Liberals win a landslide majority. The next elections in 1910, there's a hung parliament. So it's a period of extraordinary voter volatility. It's also a time when there are big arguments about welfare, about Britain's place in the world, about who it should trade with, about issues relating to gender. It's a time when there are new parties emerging, like the Labour Party. So a lot of this smells very familiar. But of course, that's perhaps also a concerning parallel, because that's also the period when Britain came closest to serious civil violence in the modern era. What does... uh, Yeah, we should say uh, the Irish, the Irish question, the Irish MPs... Uh, the willingness of Irish MPs to either uh, abstain from the UK Parliament or prop up certain parties. I mean, this feels like it's something we've seen before now. Yes, if you look at British politics from 1912 to 1914, what you have is a government, in that case a, a Liberal government, with no parliamentary majority, trying to push through a hung Parliament an exceptionally controversial and difficult policy. And of course there are lots of parallels there with where we've been over the period since 2016. Well, you know, I obviously love talking to historians about historical parallels. How you, you're, you're very vocal on Twitter about sharing. What, what, what impact do you want 
these like this podcast your tweets to have? I mean, how should we should we be listening to this? Is it a guide to the future? Is it, are you warning? Are you providing context? What is your role during a general election? I think the way I would want to see history as something that that sharpens and enriches our understanding. It's never going to give us a roadmap for the future. There are never perfect parallels between the past and the present. And sometimes actually what engaging with the past can do most usefully is remind us how different conditions were in the past. It can make us think about how things that we take for granted in the present are actually contingent and are actually challengeable. I mean, thinking beyond the general election, if you think about all the great liberation movements of the 20th century, they all create schools of history. We get women's history, black history, LGBT history, uh, workers' history. And that happens because people who want to challenge the gender order or people who want to challenge attitudes towards race look back at the past and say things have been different in the past and they could be different in the future. So let's stay with the, stay with the, um, the period at the early 20th century. What are, what are some of the... I mean, I guess there's, there's so much... that there's the, there's the kind of deeply fractured nature of UK politics... Um, sort of class-based, if we can call it that, but also kind of regional nationalisms mm. uh, and, they, and, and the way they interact. Then there's also this kind of insane first-past-the-post-electoral system, which is capable of just producing random, well, not random results, but, you know, exaggerating certain features whilst minimising others. Yes, and in, in December 1910, you get, in some ways, the most peculiar Weird result in British history, where you get an absolute dead heat <laughs> between the two big parties, the Liberals and the Conservatives and Unionists both win 272 seats. The Tories, the Conservatives get more votes, don't they? They do. Of course, yes. that doesn't matter. Yes. But, yeah. No, they, they do. They win more votes. Um, but the Liberals and their allies have more seats. Conservatives can also claim, justly, before 1914, that the Irish are greatly overrepresented. Mm. You know, the Irish population has halved over the 19th century, you know, in many ways because of misgovernment. But their number of MPs have remained the same. So they could also argue that they were being locked out of power by the disproportionate representation being given to one part of the United Kingdom. So lots of the debates we have now about things like English votes for English laws, these Lothian question, these things were all prefigured before 1914. Do we, do we think that the... This, it has the... How has the Conservative Party moved slowly? To, it's almost inevitably towards English nationalism. You know, there's been this looming question around the, the governance of the politics of the Isles, which is you've got this gigantically mismatched relationship between the big, big England and the other constituents sort of polities within these Isles. Um, the Conservatives thought it worthwhile for, for, for generations to sort of to soak to swallow that, mm. even though in 1910 it cost them and their aristocratic leaders in the House of Lords, you know, real power. They lost real power. Influence. But they thought the British, the UK project was worth pursuing. Do, do, you, see, do you see today this the sort of rise... Is it useful to talk about the rise of English nationalism in the Conservative Party? I think it is. And you're right, that's, that's always been a strain in the party. You find uh, before 1914, people like Arthur Balfour, the Conservative leader, talking about how this poor little kingdom of England is being oppressed by the Irish. But it's a question that only really becomes live at quite rare moments, and particularly actually at moments where you have a hung parliament. Because precisely because England is so numerically dominant within the United Kingdom, it's actually quite unusual to have a government that doesn't at least have substantial support in England, even if the other party might have won a majority, if it had just been in England. You will ne never get a government in the UK system that doesn't have substantial numbers of English MPs. 
But of course, if you have a hung parliament where five or ten seats can really matter, then these issues push further up the agenda. And of course, if you have, as we've had more recently, big debates about Europe and the influence of Europe, that also tends to kind of light these nationalist fires. It's very interesting to talk about hung parliaments because there's this strange, there's this funny, lots of politicians hate hung parliaments. The executive branch hate hung parliaments. Mm. By a quirk, they also sit in the legislature. But anyway, so but the but for those of you who are interested in legislature and indeed in the great moments of debate and change, 1910, 11, uh, the you know the 70s, the 90s, um, we like hung parliaments. Show that's when like the mm. last three years it might have been distressing for the executive branch, but for people that believe in the sovereignty of parliament, it's quite exciting because you know MPs matter. Like this guy or this woman. Has an out, actually could have a say if there is. So, whereas an, a giant landslide like in 1987 or something, Parliament ceases to sort of matter that much. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for hung parliaments personally. And I, I think they, they're very good for Parliament itself because Parliament matters. And to some extent, debate matters as well. And I think something perhaps a lot of us find frustrating often about the normal course of politics is the sense that debate and persuasion in Parliament doesn't matter very much because the government usually has a very large majority. It can usually carry through whatever it wants. It doesn't really matter what interesting arguments or ideas might be expressed on the opposition benches. With what we've seen recently, however painful it may have been, particularly for the executive in Parliament, is debates that really matter. Mm. And a sense that you know, on things like the Letwin Amendment or the Ben Bill, that a speech might actually sway this. Yeah, or the indicative votes. You know, that right. was a very exciting process to go through. Yeah, and to some extent this is taking us back to the politics of an earlier period of the 19th century, where actually it really did matter whether you could command the House of Commons, that the reason why someone like a Gladstone or a Disraeli gets to the top of their parties is because they're sitting in Parliament night after night after night and they are carrying votes and swaying opinion. Yeah, the opposite of Boris Johnson, in fact. Well, I, I think... Who's actually <laughs> proven spectacularly unable to win majorities in Parliament. Yes, I, I think one thing that's interesting about our present political scenario is that neither the Prime Minister nor the Leader of the Opposition draws their authority from Parliament mm. itself. Neither of them, I think, is especially popular with their own parliamentary followings. Their support comes from outside. Very presidential. And, yeah, very much so. And, and I think... And I've argued this on Twitter, that one of the difficulties of our politics at the moment is that in all sorts of ways our parties are trying to behave as if we have a presidential system. Mm. And yet institutionally we still have a parliamentary system. It's, it's, so, it's so fascinating that I agree. Um, and the days when, you know, but, but, but again, let's, let's talk about the parallels. So you've got these titanic figures, your Asquiths, your Lloyd Georges, um, in the great crisis of 1910-11... Uh, they they were appealing directly to the, the quote unquote the people and stuff, but they were still they were still parliamentarians, were they? It... Yes, that that's a tension that exists across the late nineteenth century onwards. That again, somebody like Gladstone draws much of his authority from his ability to go out into the country and address hundreds of thousands of people at mass rallies and invoke, as he saw it, the conscience of the people. But to actually legislate, they have to be able to carry support within Parliament. And because party loyalty and party discipline was weaker at that point in time, parties had fewer of the kind of weapons that they have nowadays in terms of command of the party memberships, in terms of party deselections. So it is much more important that you actually sway the wing of your party that's a problem. It also means that cabinets tend to be more diverse because you have to include in your cabinet all the different wings of your party in order to try to keep them on side. 
So let's let's blow this even larger. Then let's talk about the Republican Party in the US a little bit as well. Are we, if we're seeing similar things on both sides of the Atlantic, what's that telling us? What was it telling us that you get these kind of presidential figures who who are trying to ignore their parliamentary parties by threatening them, threatening their careers, that literally deselection, uh, primary votes, we might say in the US, by by a very close link. Perhaps via social media, in some way, you know, with their with their the foot soldiers, the party members who mm-hmm. have now been given the power to select, which is of course not true of of early twentieth century Britain necessarily. These these people weren't necessarily choosing those MPs, were they? That's right. Yes, and of course, technology is hugely important here. One of the things that makes it possible for Gladstone to become a kind of charismatic leader is the spread of the mass press, and that, that gives him a connection with the country that he hadn't had before. Now that's been dialed up to a hundred more recently by the growth of social media. You have the Twitter president in Donald Trump who can simply talk directly to his followers, who could run a presidential campaign in which he didn't really need the support of the Republican hierarchy at all. And that's creating a new kind of politics, partly because it's, it has an immediacy to it. And it might be a spurious immediacy, but you can feel a direct connection if you're a Republican voter with Donald Trump or if you're a Labour Party activist with Jeremy Corbyn. Whereas parliaments, by their nature, are slow and they involve compromise and they involve coalition building and simply passing a piece of legislation takes months usually. So that, that's not a form of politics perhaps that is particularly suited to our kind of instant Twitter 24-hour media age. Yeah, it's funny the Twitter, I mean I don't think I'm coming up with much original thought here, but it's funny how Twitter, listening to you, it does really reinforce this idea. It has... Social media has reinforced this, the, the kind of great man, the attraction of the great man. So you can say, you can say, I alone can fix this. Um, I, you know that because I'm talking. I've got a direct pipeline. I'm talking to all these people who who control my fate ultimately, the, the, the party members, and and it's it's Parliament who, who which doesn't have a, a unified voice, let alone mm. a way of transmitting it as a body to its sort of supporters. I mean, who's a parliamentary supporter apart from mm. super weirdos like me? Um, so, so, so I guess it has. This this rise of this kind of you know almost Mussolini esque uh, these charismatic figures like Corbyn Johnson, uh, lots of other places in the world of course um, it, that that is that that it, it's it's working with the social media is inflating that already existing tendency to to uh, celebrate the, the individual. Yeah, there's a tragic book written by Al Gore, the former Democratic nominee, called The Assault on Reason, which came out in the early 2000s. It's about the rise of fake news in the early 2000s. And he talks about this sort of torrent of misinformation. But he also, he's very optimistic in there because he believes that the solution to this is, is the internet. There's more information. Yeah, that the internet is going to mean that people can fact check. It's going to democratise knowledge. It's going to take power away from great leaders and established parties. And that's not wholly false. We do have all sorts of fact checking sites. But it also, of course, means that leaders can now simply leapfrog the institutions that used to counterbalance them and that used to exist to keep them in check and appeal directly on their own terms to a wider public without the kind of gatekeeping role of MPs or established political interviewers. Uh, what is... Uh, so we've got, we got social media, uh, we've got te- changes in technology. What is, um, what, what are, what are, what's fundamentally different about today's election, about today's campaign, than the early, to, to the early 20th century? Can I talk about similarity instead? Let's talk about similarity then. Yeah, because I, I think... The, the real connecting link is in both cases, you have a mobilisation of the people against Parliament. Mm. So if we go back to the period before 1914, the Conservatives really run with this idea that Parliament is despotic, 
that Parliament exists to obstruct the will of the people and that it's, it's willing in, in the period before 1914 even to consider things like the use of a paramilitary army in order to stop Parliament. And we have seen a very similar rhetoric more recently around the idea that a Remainer Parliament has been obstructing the will of the people, that Parliament has made itself illegitimate and, has no, and that the authority of Parliament is trumped by the referendum of 2016. And that's also always been a tension in democracy. The idea, the tension between the will of the people in a kind of pure sense and the messy arguments that go on between representatives of the people in Parliament. But the two periods that's really spiked in modern British history have been 1912 to 1914 and 2016 to the present. The will of the people thing is so fascinating because ultimately direct democracy, which has been facilitated by the census, uh, the, the internet... You know, we could all we all vote for X Factor every week. We could all be voting all the time mm. on things. The threat of democracy to to representative democracy with its roots way back into sort of the medieval period is is existential. Like, you know, it's amazing to me that people like Nigel Farage don't call for it more. You know, why mm. are always calling for more referenda? Because that's the logic, almost the logical endpoint of this argument, isn't it? Yes, I mean, one of the difficulties with democracy is that democracy is a principle, not a system of government. Democracy doesn't tell you how to govern. It simply expresses the principle that the people should govern. But it doesn't tell you how the people should make decisions. And so, throughout the last few hundred years, as societies are beginning to grips with democracy, they've experimented with parliaments, with referendums, with institutions like citizens' juries more recently, in the 20th century, you get the rise of mass opinion polling, which is a new form of trying to express the will of the people. And in some respects, it's a sort of historical accident that parliaments, which are medieval pre-democratic institutions, survive into the democratic era. But there's no reason intrinsically why that has to continue. There might be good reasons that we should think about as to why we want it to continue. But you know, there are other ways of doing this. And the more that social media allows politicians and governments simply to go straight to the public or straight to carefully chosen sections of the public, as it may be, the more tempting it's going to be for them to do that. Uh, yeah, I just think that's coming down the, that's coming down the tracks. I can't see how, how that isn't the case. Mm. Um, what, what, does, what does our... This is the bit that you can't answer. Uh, what, what does your study of pre-war uh, politics in Britain, pre-First World politics... What's it, does it give us any hints? Does it give us any ideas about what might lie ahead for us? I think it gives us a terrible warning because after 1912, the Conservatives made a case which was not entirely invalid that Parliament had set itself against the will of the people by trying to drive through Home Rule for Ireland. Yeah, we should say quickly, we should say why yeah. that Liberal um, minority government was so radical. They, they tried to give home rule to Ireland yes. against the wishes of the Ulster and other Protestants in Ireland right. and the Conservative Union Party. They, had, they broke the power of the House of Lords yes. in, in a strategic, you know, world historical sense. Uh, and they were pushing through radical programmes of welfare, for tax and spend, basically, right? Yes. And the Conservatives said all of this, but home rule was the one they really objected to, was it? Home rule was the, the okay. absolutely key issue. So home rule was was seen by the Conservatives as a threat to national security because a home rule Ireland governed from Dublin at a time when Britain was in an arms race with Imperial Germany, when its security seems to be at threat, was seen as an existential threat to the UK. But it was also seen as dangerous to liberty. There was great concern about whether Protestants in Ulster could be governed by Catholics south south of what's now the border. 
But they also argued that this was undemocratic, that the Liberals had no majority for this, they had not put it to the country in a referendum, they had not made it a major issue in the general election. So they argued that the government was exceeding its powers by trying to do this. And where that logic took them was to an exceptionally dangerous place because they gave their support to a paramilitary army in Northern Ireland, the Ulster Volunteers. They almost certainly helped supply weapons to it. And Andrew Bonalaw, the Conservative leader, gave a famous speech in which he said, there are things stronger than parliamentary majorities. And he was talking about the capacity of armed force to overcome the decisions of a parliament. And by 1914, they're running posters saying things like, a vote for the Liberal is a vote for civil war. Now, whatever you think of Joe Swinson, nobody is saying that, that kind of thing nowadays. And this, I think, is where this, this logic can take you. Once a party or a newspaper or a section of opinion decides that they know the will of the people, that they embody the will of the people, and that they can use that as a weapon against the elective institutions we have in order to try to mediate between the people, we're a long way from that kind of violence now, but you're on a road that leads to that kind of civic breakdown. Yeah, and if you take out the... Uh, what's the bit of a bridge which the big stone, that the bridge... Um, keystone? The keystone. Right. And if you take out parliamentary sovereignty, that is the keystone of the British government. There is nothing else. Like if, you, if you remove that bit, then you've got nothing left, right? So if you say... If, if, so there is a, yeah, there is an idea. If the Tories don't win a majority and you get a... In a magic, okay, worst case scenario, isn't it, is that the Tories win the popular vote, the most number of seats, but then there is a rainbow coalition mm. that then tries to block Brexit. You're, you're absolutely in that kind of territory there, aren't you? Yes, you're in extremely dangerous territory there because you will have competing visions of democracy and competing claims about a democratic mandate coming into collision. But we've been close to this already. I think one of the most extraordinary things that's happened in my lifetime was the recent prorogation or suspension of Parliament by a minority government, in which, you know, under the British system, the democratic right of a government to, to rule comes solely from its ability to have a majority in the House of Commons. That is our only elective That's institution. It. There is no other part of the Constitution for the UK as a whole that we elect. So, you know, I commented at the time, this is like a plant declaring war on the soil in which it grows, that a government whose democratic mandate can only come from Parliament, if it declares war on Parliament then our entire democratic system is breaking down. And I think we need to have a, a, a very serious think about which direction we want to go in in future. If we want an executive that has an independent democratic authority that it can wield against parliaments, then we have to accept the logic of that and think about something like an elected presidency totally. where it has its own mandate. But if we don't want that, if we want to keep a parliamentary system, then we cannot have an executive that tries to use the powers of the Crown to shut down the House of Commons. Madison and Jefferson were right. They the, were. The, the executive branch sitting in the legislature is nuts. It doesn't make any sense at all. I don't think it's necessarily nuts. <laughs> I, I, think it's, <laughs> I, I think it can work, but it only works if there is an understanding that that is where your authority comes yeah. from. And the way Badgett in the 19th century used to write about the cabinet, you know, this was not a sort of top team that you took pictures of. This was a sort of... A sort of uh, uh, it derived its legitimacy from them being parliamentarians, and it was a it was a group of equals, wasn't it? Mm. The way he describes it, it was completely different to this idea of this kind of this presidential executive branch that we've we've ended up with now. Yes, and we've ended up with that partly because for fifty, sixty years, first past the post worked 
in the sense that it gave governments very large parliamentary majorities most of the time, which meant that they didn't actually have to worry about how they managed parliaments. Mm. That just happened automatically. Whereas, of course, since 2010, we've been stuck either in hung parliaments or in parliaments that are very close to being hung. And politicians don't, of this generation don't have much experience of managing a parliament. Mm. And I think both our most recent prime ministers have tended to assume that Parliament should function as if they have a majority. Like the 80s, man. They're all children of the 80s. Right. Like, what's going on? Yes, you don't need to. You know, Margaret yeah. Thatcher never had to negotiate with Parliament yeah. because she always had a large majority in it. And Blair, of course, as well. Absolutely. Actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's been, it, you know, it looks like, who knows what will happen next week, but it looks like we are in a period where hung parliaments or very small majorities are going to be more frequent than they have been in the past. And that's going to require us, I think, to relearn how the executive and parliament work with one another. Well, one day there'll be a convention and bright people like you will be in the central Methodist hall bashing out a constitution that might actually work. I think the day that academics run the country is the day that things really fall apart. Well, well oh yeah, we wouldn't want that, buddy, because goodness me. <laughs> um, listen, thank you very much. Uh, that was so generous of you to give up some time before the pleasure. election. And, um, and how can people get in touch with you, your work and follow you and all that sort of stuff? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter, at Red Historian. That's probably the best way. Okay. Um, and yes, they, I, they can look at my blog, The Gladstone Diaries. Perfect. The Gladstone Diaries. Get over there, everyone. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I feel that has the history of one